Let's uh, flip over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll keep going through uh, the letter to the Corinthians. Now, just by way of review and introduction, remember Paul is writing back to Corinth. This is at least the third letter. Uh, we know that because in 1 Corinthians, he says, uh, this, is now, uh, this is not the first time I'm writing to you. So it was the second letter. Uh, 1 Corinthians is just the first letter that we have. So in 1 Corinthians, he's writing back to them. There was a lot of uh, difficulties that were going on, a lot of uh, things that were the norm, I guess, that uh, most of us would probably not want to abide. And so Paul is writing back to them, and he writes back with incredible encouragement, actually. He writes back and he says, you guys have this, uh, all the gifting is going on at your church. You guys have this life, and Christ is going to confirm you. And he, he begins the whole of 1 Corinthians with just hope, right? And then he goes into some pretty substantial corrections. And now in the letter that we have here, Paul is writing back to them. And in the beginning, he's writing essentially defending his apostleship, his right to write to them, as it were. And he makes the statements and he's talking in great detail about, uh, do we need letters of recommendation to you? Which was a practice in the, in the church then. And he says, no, we shouldn't because... We, you are our letter, Corinth. You're written on our hearts, and everybody can read it. And he's making the point that I shouldn't need letters from James or John or one of these guys to validate what I'm saying to you, because he's saying, I started that church, right? He was there for 18 months. He began the church there. Obviously, the Lord did, but he, he used Paul. So now he's writing back to them, and we're in the middle of a, a, a four-chapter digression, five-chapter digression, right? In chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, he starts talking about how his heart was unsettled, and so he was unable to stay, and he went to, on to Macedonia to try to find one of the brethren. And so then he stops uh, talking about Macedonia, and he begins to talk about uh, ministry and the new covenant and all these different things. And then in chapter 7, he'll then say, and then we came to Macedonia. <laughs> so essentially, this is Paul going on a side journey uh, to talk about um, suffering, life, in the New Covenant and ministry in the New Covenant. And it's, uh, in, in my opinion, it's, I'm very thankful for it. It's one of my favorite parts of Scripture. So in chapter 3, Paul lays out three times using this word in Greek uh, that means useless. And it's translated in our English, it's, it's translated transitory. So he calls the Old Covenant transitory. And he's making the point to them because there's false teachers in the church and they're, they're promoting Judaism in Christianity. And we see that today some too. In their case, they're promoting uh, circumcision, generally speaking, circumcision, uh, the Sabbath, and dietary laws. And they're saying that you need to maintain these things. And so Paul is writing back to them and he says, no, the old covenant is now obsolete, literally obsolete. It's transitory. It came to an end, right? In Christ. We're not saying it was bad. We're not saying it didn't have a place. We're not even saying that it's not useful today for seeing God's heart. We're just saying that it's not part of the Christian experience as far as for obedience sake of the law, the, the Levitical law and so forth. Um, so Paul writing to them saying, no, we have all that we need in Christ, right? And uh, he continues there in, in chapter 3, and he's talking about how all these things are passing away. The old covenant, everything that's visible is passing away. And then he's talking about that our calling is to to look at the Lord, to behold his glory. Remember, he's, I don't know how many times the word glory appears in these, these uh, chapter 2 through 4, 
uh, I would guess probably 20 some odd times, but he, he over and over again uses this word glory, which remember in the Greek is doxa or a good opinion or good words about someone, literally what it means. And so in the New Testament, it's always good words uh, typically about God, right? That there's this doxa. So he says that we're to be considering God's glory, who, who he is, what he's like, the, the good testimony of who he is. Then in chapter 4, which we covered last week, he goes in and he says, therefore, so because of this incredible stuff that happened in verse three, or chapter 3 that we just talked about, so because of that and because of God's mercy, we have a ministry. Everybody. Now, he's specifically talking about, uh, well, his companions at this point, which is uh, Tim and two other guys, Timothy and uh, Silas, I believe it is. And he's, he's there, and he's saying that, that he's saying we have a ministry, and he's speaking of himself, but we also have a ministry. We can appropriate this for ourselves, too. And he says that because God's given ministry, uh, mercy, we have a ministry. We have a service. We have something that we're involved in with God's kingdom. And he says, and what he's talking about is this new covenant. Forgiveness through the blood of Christ, right? And then the resurrection of Christ and, and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and our ministry is to let people know and to help people to be part of that. He's going to go on. He says, we don't use deception. We don't use all these things to try to get the word to be more palatable or to, to try to get people to our point of view. He says, we're not doing that. He goes on to say that, that uh, Christ, who is the image of God, that that's who we're proclaiming. And we're able to proclaim Christ as his image, not just image in like they look alike or something like that, but image in that everything that God, the Father ever wanted to say is visible in Christ, right? Through what, how Christ acted, through what Jesus said, you know, all these different ways. So he says that that reality, that, that uh, knowledge of God, of who he is, is shown to us through the face of Christ. And he says we, we, we are able to uh, contain that or have that in these earthen vessels, right? These these bodies. We're able to experience and consider and think about who God is and all that he has for us because we see it in Christ's face and we, we have it in that treasure in these earthen bodies. He goes on from there, still talking about ministry, and he says in verse 8 of chapter 4, he says, we are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed. We're perplexed but not in despair. We're persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. So he, he makes these, these points about ministry, about just life, Life and wanting to follow Jesus. I'm not saying the people that aren't following Jesus don't have struggles. We do have struggles, right? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian. There are struggles to be had. Oftentimes there are specific struggles to Christianity because of how the world might view things or whatnot. But there's just in general, there's struggles. In this case, he's talking about struggles in ministry. In other words, we, I, don't want, I guess what I'm trying to do is, is point out the fact that yes, in Paul's ministry, which would be traveling around, preaching the gospel, getting beat up in every city he went to, causing riots, jailed by the Romans, beheaded by Nero. You know, yes, that, those, that's substantial struggle. But I, I don't want to get away from the fact that while we may not be in that kind of struggle, there's many struggles in life. So I'm not trying to maximize or minimize anything like that, but just to say that we have our struggles. And you can maybe identify with being places in your life where you feel pressed on every side. Just pressure. Just, just can't get away from it. You can't escape from it, right? But he says, we experienced pressure like that, but we weren't crushed. The pressure didn't crush us. He says, we experienced being perplexed, and that means confused, not understanding, like what's happening here? And he says, but we weren't in despair. And you can, maybe you've experienced that where things happen in your life, and, and maybe they happened because someone else caused them. Maybe they happened because you caused them. And maybe they happened because things just happen, right? 
Jesus made a, it's one of my favorite quotes where he's asking the disciples, and he says, when the Tower of Siloam fell and killed those people, do you think that they are more sinful than anybody else? He says, I tell you, no. <laughs> but you'll die likewise if you don't repent. And he's not saying that everybody who repents gets a, a, a tower that falls on him. He's just making the point that a tower fell. People died, and it didn't mean they were less sinful or more sinful. It just, it happened. And so every person has struggle. Every person has difficulty. And in his point in there is that every person will die in their sins. But all that to say is, we've probably experienced places where we're perplexed. Why did this happen? Why did it go down this way? Why did this person say that? Or maybe we get perplexed about our own sin. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? And he says, but even though we're perplexed about things that are going on around us in this ministry, we don't despair. And I think when we're confused, it'll often lead to despair, won't it? Because despair is, is, is losing hope. Hope not losing desire. We always have desire, right? But hope doesn't mean desire. We use it that way all the time. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I get this job. I hope I get married. I hope I don't get married. I hope, you know, whatever it might be. We use, we use hope as desire all the time. That's not what hope is. Hope is expectation. So when the Christian says, I have the hope of heaven, we're not saying I desire heaven, although that may be true. We're saying I expect to be in heaven because of what Christ did, right? Not on our own account where we go, I am so great, I expect to be there, but because of what Jesus did, right? And so when we are perplexed, when we go, why is this happening? Why do I always feel this way? Why do I always sin this way? Why do they always sin this way? Why is the world the way it is? Why did the Tower of Shalom fall? Why this, why that? It doesn't have to lead to despair, right? Because of this hope, this expectation of the new covenant, this ministry that we have to invest in, that the, an eternal God will, will someday return to a temporal earth and that he'll restore order and then everything that comes after that, right? So even though we are oftentimes perplexed about things, we don't have to despair, Paul says in this ministry, because we know that things will be set right. From there, three different ways he illustrates the same idea. In verse 10, he says this, we are always carrying about in the body the death of, of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also revealed in our body. We who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Verse 12, so then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So three times, he, it's, it's a little bit poetic, three times he makes essentially the same statement, and that is that Every believer who's wanting to walk with Jesus bears in their body the death of Jesus. And that, that death of Jesus, bearing that, 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 uh, that death, that it actually will reap life for themselves and others. And what does that mean? Well, it is an initial idea of salvation that when we see what Jesus did, because what is the cross about, right? The cross is about Jesus Christ being judged for our sin, right? That's what it was that a righteous man, the only righteous person to ever live, was sent by God to live among us, express who he is, show who he is, show who God is. And then he was slated, uh, destined to go to a cross. And that cross, and there's nothing special about the cross. It's not that it was a cross that somehow made it a special death. It was just the cross because that's what the Romans used. Right? So I'm not minimizing the cross. It was probably the worst way to die. But is, there's nothing special about that specific mode of death. But he went to a cross because the Romans learned that from the Persians about 600 years prior, and now they used it. And so he's crucified for sin. 
So when he's crucified for sin and he's bleeding and his blood is flowing out of him, his death, we're told that it's dark for three hours. Right? It goes dark for three hours. And Christ is literally being forsaken and judged by his Father as if he had committed all the sins of humanity. And just think for a moment what it's like to bear your sin, right? What it's like to, to realize when you've done something and it it's, can be fairly catastrophic. Sometimes we do things and, or we say things or we think things and we go, wow, that's tough to bear. That's tough for me to bear. It's, it's, it's humbling, it's destroying. Christ bore that for everyone. That's what happened at Calvary. And so we're told that just as he fulfilled all the previous sacrifices of the Judaic sacrifices, that his blood satisfied God's wrath. Okay? So when he rose from the dead, after bleeding and being the perfect sacrifice, he demonstrated power over death, that he was truly or is truly an innocent person. And so when a person hears the gospel and hears the forgiveness that Christ purchased for us, they, in a sense, bear the death of Christ. They acknowledge it and they say, and this is for anyone today who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, who doesn't know the forgiveness of sin, you can have it today. By simply asking the Lord Jesus Christ for, for, the, for the forgiveness, he already purchased for you. Acknowledging that you need that. Acknowledging that sin and saying, you know, forgive me. There's no magic words. It's the sentiment. It's the, it's the need, the desire, and the crying out for that forgiveness for our guilt and our shame. And that's available to every person today. And so then, then we bear the life of Jesus as a saved individual, right? But as Christians, as people who want to be Jesus followers, however we want to label it, we are called to live a life where we bear the death of Jesus. So Jesus didn't suffer for himself, right? He suffered for others. So the death of Jesus was a substitutionary death. So when we bear the death of Jesus, what that means is that we walk around in the same way that Jesus did and that we're not insisting on our own will, right? Because even as people who get saved, we have a will, right? It's often demonstrated in whether it's poetry or movies or books or whatever as the, the good and the bad angel, right, on our shoulder. It's a tad inaccurate because that's in us. There's no bad angel on our shoulder being like, you should be mean to people. That just comes from the inside, Let's just be honest, right? That's the sinful nature. It's the sinful nature that rages on people, gets upset with people, and you know, wants to be unjust in certain situations and so forth. And so we, if we want to be involved in God's kingdom and helping, right, and not experiencing death, not death physically per se, but death on a spiritual level or on a fellowship level, we say no to ourselves, just as Jesus did in the, in the garden, Right? If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, Jesus said, be done, but your will be done. So Jesus is faced with something he's not looking forward to. And he says, Lord, if it cannot go this way, I would like that. Let this cup pass from me. Please don't make me drink this, right? But he says, and he says, but it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. So that's what we bear as anybody who wants to be involved with God. We come to places where we say, it's not what I want, it's what you want. So if by bearing the death of Jesus in our bodies, then that allows the life of Jesus to manifest. Use this example. If you're 
Well, we, I'll, I'll use a different one. I'll use coffee in the first service. So second service, we'll use Holly's bread. <laughs> yeah, right? Holly's garlic bread. So if you've been around the church much, if you come to uh, the, the church meals like we have afterwards, it's lasagna and bread. But the bread is the main attraction, right? If, if you've had it before, right? There's the token salad so we don't feel guilty, but the bread <laughs> is the main attraction. So let's say you're going through the line and somehow you kind of end up towards the back and you see someone pick up that last piece of bread, right? Yes, <laughs> right? We're not children, so we don't voice that outwardly, but that's how we feel, right? You want to sneak in a foot stomp. You want to, like, turn around a few times and be like, why? Like that scene from Platoon, you know? Ah, that's, that would be the flesh, right? You'd just be acting out of raw desire and discomfort, right? So if you respond that way, we'll probably chuckle at you, right? And then be concerned, right? <laughs> but that would just be acting out in the flesh, and that would, it would reap death around you, wouldn't it? It'd make people feel uncomfortable around you. People are not going to want to sit next to you now, right? And you can't blame them for that. I mean, let's be honest. So it, it would reap separation and death in your life. And it also shows for us, me, I'll, I'll just say it's me, I, you know, it, show, it shows, it demonstrates for me what I truly value, which would be my comfort and my tummy, right? <laughs> or my, or my, maybe my, my uh, taste buds might be more accurate, but... But I would supremely value that over my brethren, right? Because an idea of faith, an idea of love goes, I'm glad that person got that bread, right? I'm glad that they get that blessing. I'm okay not having that blessing. So it's a silly example, but the reality is one response will reap death and cause division in a body, won't it? It's amazing how one response can destroy a life or relationship, isn't it? And then, but if I, if I decide to look at that and I go, you know what, that was not optimal for my taste buds. But, you know what, that person got blessed. God bless them in that. All of a sudden, nobody else may know it, but that's reaping life in me, isn't it? And then when I go sit down at the table with them, I'm not like eyeballing the bread, ignoring what they have to say. <laughs> I'm listening to them. And all of a sudden, we can have dialogue and conversation, and I can care about them, right? It is incredible what will come up in our hearts that will prevent fellowship from another person, isn't it? So Paul, three times, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think he illustrates the same point three times in ministry, effective ministry. And I just mean serving people, helping people in ministry. That we bear the death of Jesus in our mortal bodies, so we might also bear his life. And there's really not another equation. There's not another way to bear the life of Christ to others except to accept the death of Christ in us. So in chapter 4, uh, or I should say in, in, in the end of chapter 4, he says, uh, well, we're going to start today in verse 13. He says this, It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. 
Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. So again, this is all building, right? Everything we've been studying, everything we've been reading and talking about, the introduction we just talked about, it's all this building thought of effectual ministry in our own hearts and for others, right? So Paul says... Uh, he he kind of changes gears here in verse 13, and now he's going to quote Psalm 116. He says, It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Now there's a lot to be said about this, even, even down to the idea that we have the same spirit of faith. So he's, you know, here in, in uh, Psalm 116, it's an uncredited psalm. We don't know who, uh, who wrote it. But the psalmist writes, and he gives this idea, and if we were to go back there and, and read it, it's all about God's delivering them from bad stuff that's happening. Does that make sense? And feel free to go read it. It's a, it's a great psalm. But the whole psalm, because as Bible students, as a side note, whenever you see a quote out of the Old Testament, in order to understand it, what do we do? We want to go back and read it, right? Because sometimes it'll be like one little line, but there's a giant thought behind it. So if we go back and we read this psalm, it's interesting because what the psalmist is saying is this. Even though all this bad stuff is happening, which is our context too, right? Dying to ourselves, not giving in to our desires and our flesh and all this. He says, even though all this bad stuff is happening to me, the psalmist says, I still believe you, so I still speak. Does that make sense? So it's the idea of speaking, in a sense, in defiance of unbelief. The idea of sharing because you actually think something. Now, this is what's interesting about faith, right? Jesus asks some difficult questions about faith, right? He asked the disciples at one point, he says, why are you afraid? That's, a, I think, one of the best questions ever been asked. Why are you afraid? He, always asks them, he also asks them, why is it that you have no faith? He also asked them at one point, why do you have such little faith? Because what faith is, and you can turn to Hebrews 11 if you'd like and read about it, but for time's sake, I'm just going to summarize it. Faith is an internal conviction, an internal reality that God is real and that God rewards those who seek him. That is what Hebrews 11 is. It's a conviction inside that the invisible God is real and that he's good to me. Can we just put it that way? That's what faith is. So, by defining what faith is, we don't necessarily how def define how faith works or how we get more faith or what it generates inside of us. But what we do know is when we believe something, whatever it might be, we just naturally assume and act upon it, right? So, you got in your car probably this morning or you put your shoes on or whatever. You did something today because you believed that it would work for you. Right? You believed if I put my shoes on, I won't look crazy walking across the gravel parking lot screaming about the pain in my feet. Because you believed that your shoes would protect you from the rocks in the parking lot, right? You put your key into the ignition today because you believed that turning it would make magical little energies flow around your car and then either start, you know, either provoke a battery or an internal combustion engine to then bring you here, right? And the levers and pedals and whatnot. Some of us have some idea, some of us have no idea how it works. We just, it's like, it just works, right? 
So when true faith is not thinking about the thing, it's just doing the thing, if that makes sense. It's a, it, it creates natural reaction. Does that make sense? So Paul's saying here, quoting the psalmist, he's saying, we believe. He's not saying he has perfect faith, right? We could turn to Philippians chapter 3 where he says, I don't count myself to have attained. He goes, I just keep pressing on towards the goal, the high calling of Christ Jesus. We could turn to Romans chapter 7 where he says, the good that I want to do, I don't do that. In fact, he says, the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And you know what's fascinating about, as a side note, about uh, chapter 7? When the word, what I find myself doing in the English, translate in the Greek, it's this. It's prazo. The evil I don't want to do, I find myself practicing. Isn't that wild? It kind of blows away some of the interpretations of 1 John. But he says, I find myself practicing. So he's not saying he has complete faith. He's just saying that he has faith, right? And he says, we believe, speaking of, in this context, his own ministry, but we can appropriate that too. He says, we believe, and so therefore, we speak. And he says, we have the same faith. I think that's noteworthy. We're not going to talk too much about it, but the faith of Abraham, the faith of the psalmist, the faith of Moses, faith has always been faith. If you go all the way back to Abraham, the father of faith, right, what did he do? God said, I'm going to bless you. Abraham said, cool. God was like, yeah, you're right with me then. That was it. There was no like big confession. There was no like, I believe that you're the one true God and all that. He didn't have that. God literally just appears to him and says, hey, uh, yeah, funny story. I'm going to bless you. And through you, the whole world's going to be blessed. And Abraham says, okay. And God says, you're right with me then. You are righteous with me because you trusted what I said. So faith has always been the same. Whether it's faith for Abraham, which was a singular faith of God to say, I'm going to bless you, and Abraham said, I'm in. Or whether it's the faith of the Christian who says, I believe in what Christ is enough for my sin, and I don't have to build on it. So faith has always been faith. So in this case, Paul has this faith in what the new covenant is, this incredible forgiveness. And, and Paul has had years by this point of experience and so forth, seeing God's forgiveness, right? So he's able to say, we believe, so we keep speaking. In the face of all the difficulty, right, the perplexedness, the, the beatdowns, the, the pressure, you know, the persecution, being struck down but not destroyed, all these things, he says, we have faith and so we're able to speak. So then the question, be, you know, I think that I would propose is how do we get faith, right? Because struggling is not faith. It's good to struggle. It's good to have a struggle, if there's no struggle in your life and you're just like, screw this noise, that's not a good place to be, right? But if you're struggling in your life and you're saying, I know I want more of Jesus, but there's this other part of me that doesn't do that and instead practices what I don't want, then you're in good company. So how can we as Christians begin to actually build something that is of eternal value and get away from our own worst enemy, not ourselves, or not Satan, but ourselves, right? And so there's a few scriptures, and, and I'll, I'm just going to give them out for time's sake. We want to be careful with context, but in Romans chapter 10, and in verse 17, Paul is mostly talking about Israel, and somewhat he's talking about the, the Gentiles. And he makes the case that the word of God was near Israel, it was in their mouth. He's quoting Deuteronomy. 
And he's making the case that at any time, any Israelite that wanted to could have turned to the Lord, that they understood the law, they understood his word, and they understood what God was doing, and any one of them at any time could have turned to him. In fact, he quotes out of Isaiah saying, all day long I held my hand out to a rebellious people. So all day long God was reaching out to Israel, but as a nation they rejected him in the old covenant and they rejected his Messiah. But then he also quotes and he says, I've been found of a people that weren't looking for me. And this is an idea of the Gentiles, that the Gentiles, people who were not Israelites, had at any point, any time, any Gentile could receive him if they wanted to. And then he's, and he's talking about there in chapter 17, he says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So faith, first and foremost, comes by hearing the word of God. Now, what specifically? Because at the time that he says that, there's no New Testament, right? The New Testament doesn't exist when he writes that. We do know in John, right? In John 1, John tells us something. He's, he's kind of John the revelatory. He's, he's, he's a mystic. I like this guy. I'm into him. But he says, he says this, that in the beginning was the word, logos, same, same word in Greek. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? Then in verse 14, he says that the word, the logos, God's word, it became flesh, and it dwelt among us. So the, God's expression of all that he is and all that he has to say was in Christ, and God is Christ. So you have the Father and the Son. So when Christ came, and, we, and it's the same in Hebrews, it's to say we just read it in chapter uh, earlier up here in chapter 4. When Christ came, everything that God wanted to say was in Jesus. So faith comes by hearing about Jesus, but it comes by hearing about the real Jesus. Because there's a lot of fake Jesuses running around there. A lot of fake ideas. Remember, he, what is he combating? He's combat, combating Judaism. But in the early church, you had all sorts of heresy, just like today. You had Gnosticism, hidden knowledge. Everyone loves hidden knowledge, right? We love the Goonies. We love National Treasure. Everybody loved Treasure Island when we were kids. I don't know if it's banned now or not, but you know, we, we loved those things, right? Because it's secret treasure. Somehow Gnosticism just goes to the core of our hearts. We're like, numerology in the Bible. You're like, oh, there were actually no page numbers in the Bible. <laughs> it was a scroll. But you know, we just love to think that there's this deep secret. If we say Yeshua instead of Jesus, if we do this, or do, we'll get closer to God. Gnosticism, right? This is crazy ideas. So there's, there's always been these, these, these bad teachings, whether it's Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus King James only, Jesus plus a million of them, right? So when we hear about, when we read about and we focus on a fake Jesus, it's going to have a fake fruit in us, isn't it? If I focus on a Jesus that's just really chapped, that's just really angry, and I take things out of context that he said to Pharisees in different times, and I just constantly want to harp on people's sin, all these different things, well, that's going to have a certain fruit in my life, isn't it? It's going to be a judgmental fruit. It's going to be a measuring fruit. It's, going to, it's not going to generate love in my heart. Right, But if I'm focused on God's word as it is in Christ, if I read the words in red, if I consider these things, what do I find Jesus saying other than to people who were religious leaders that were rejecting him and rejecting him? And we know why they rejected him. Uh, one was jealousy, but also in Romans, Paul tells us that Israel rejected Jesus because 
excuse me, they were seeking their own righteousness. They wanted to be righteous with God because they did the law. They were faithful enough to the law, which creates pride, right? And that's what you see kind of manifest in the Pharisees. So even though Jesus had hard words for them, everyone else, I mean, can you imagine? Uh, they, they, it's awesome. Like Jesus sits down with, with all the hookers and the tax collectors, thieves and robbers. You know, I don't think that that was like a, like a, I don't know how to put it, a more, I don't think thieves and robbers and, and prostitutes hung out in like a more sanctified area back then than they do now. You know what I mean? It's not like those were like, they were actually good people. And you, no. I mean, if, if, you, if you go, and I'm not trying to be a jerk here, but if you go and you hang out with people that are, that are really down and out, really immersed in sin, it's hard, isn't it? Because they're just like us, and the more immersed in sin that we get, what do we get like? The more introspective, right? The more selfish, it's hard to be around people who have given themselves to sin because they're, they're consumed with themselves. And I'm not, it's us too. There go I, but by the grace of God, I'm not making some statement like, there's people. I'm just saying that that's who Jesus wouldn't hung out with. And he said crazy things like, go and sin no more. I forgive you. Right? He did crazy things like, just say, hey, your sins are forgiven because you trusted me. And this is who Jesus is. So when we focus on, we consider who the real Jesus is from his word, from his word, <laughs> then it's incredible the faith that that builds, doesn't it? Because if you know that God is for you, I, I don't know if you have this existence. I'm a closet legalist. I'm recovering. Been, a, been free. Been, you know, I really am. Because I got saved into a church that was like, if you don't, well, let's put it this way. Every male was expected you spent at least about 20 hours a week in the Word, period, or you were shamed. You, we went to, we had Tuesday night prayer meeting, Wednesday Bible study, Thursday night two-by-two two outreach, Saturday uh, in the morning we listened to, to uh, tape sermons for two hours, Sunday started about 8.30 and it went to about 5.30 at night, and then oftentimes we had other stuff after that, and that included an hour break to go two-by-two two witnessing in our downtown every week. And we had 40-hour week jobs, and we were expected to study the Word. And there were some good things, I mean, good things that came from that, too. A lot of people got outreach, too, and so forth. But it destroyed a lot of us. It destroyed a lot of people. And it, and it either caused people to shipwreck their faith or they become incredibly proud uh, because of what they had accomplished. But the point is this. When, when we hear about the wrong Jesus, when we buy into the works-based Jesus, when we buy into the I get my own righteousness Jesus, the, the fallout is catastrophic for us and for everyone around us. But when we're looking at and considering and studying the true Jesus, it develops faith. When you know that Jesus is for you and not against you, when you understand the power of the cross, that sin was forever paid for by Christ, that you are forgiven of sin. That in 1 John where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That when you look at that in the context, because John says right there, he says, we're telling you these things because we want you to have fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father. 
when you begin to understand that John is not saying that you have to be re-forgiven of your sin, that it's a, it's a fellowship issue and not a salvation issue, when you understand the, the present active indicative, which is all over the scripture about how salvation works, and that might sound weird, but the idea that every time salvation is talked about and righteousness, it's always presented in a Greek verb form that is you being acted upon at the present time. Does that make sense? So in forgiveness is you being acted upon by God, by an outside force, for your forgiveness. Your righteousness is established. You are as right with God as you will ever be in your entire life. You are not building up righteousness to get more right with God. Now see, if you're like me and you're a closet legalist, you go, no, that can't be. The people will go crazy. But is that really your response? When you know the love of Christ in your life, when you know the forgiveness and the cleansing, is your response like, hey, everybody, let's go to LBT tonight and get liquored? Or is your response like, I want to be closer to Jesus? Who is this forgiver? Who is this Lord? Now, sin has a penalty, right? If I, like, if I act like a complete jerk, if I go in there right now and, and we're, we get done and we pray, like, oh, God, you're so good, and I thank you, and, nah, 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 and then I go in there and be like, out of my way, I'm first in line. <laughs> right? That'll produce a fruit, won't it? Some people in here will go, I'm never going to that church again because it's full of hypocrites. Some people will be like, what is that guy's problem? And hopefully some of you will be like, what's wrong with James? We should go ask him what's wrong. That was weird. Right? So sin will have destruction. If I am continually rude to my wife, guess what my family life will be like? Really bad. Right? If she stays with me. If I, if I dominate my children, I treat them poorly, guess what their lives will be like? Guess what my relationship will be like with them after they're 18? Right? Sin will always destroy. It always will. So we're not saying, oh, sin's not a big deal. It's a huge deal, but it's not a forgiveness deal anymore because of Christ. It's not a righteousness issue. It's a fellowship issue. We don't sin against the law anymore. The law doesn't apply to us anymore, Romans 7 tells us. We sin against love. So it's a new relationship that we have in Christ. When we hear about that Jesus, it begins to build faith. And it's kind of an interesting dynamic because once that starts to happen, we, we, we kind of have, if you will, and, and this is crude, so forgive me, but like tier one faith, right? We got saved. We're like, I'm, Jesus is legit. I'm not sure how legit yet, but I'm, I'm thankful that I'm saved, and, and I know that something's changed in my life. And then hopefully we get in fellowship. We start discipleship. What's discipleship? It's just meeting with someone, typically, learning how to walk with Jesus, learning truth about things, someone to help you, to pray with you. That's discipleship. It's not indoctrination. You know, if you're interested in being discipled, we have people that would love to help you with that. But it's not that we're going to indoctrinate you into our church. You don't have to come here. It's so you can learn about who Jesus is, right? That's it. So all of a sudden, you're in this dynamic. You got saved. You've learned a little bit about Jesus. Hopefully, you're learning more. And then what happens is what Paul's talking about. Trial happens. Difficulty. And it can be any kind of difficulty. It can be somebody caused it, you caused it, something else like we already talked about. Just random happened. And then we have to decide in that very moment, will we believe? That's what we have to decide. Because if, if struggle enters my life and I walk through it with disbelief, what will that look like? 
anger, anxiety, depression, right? Lashing out, stress. Those things can lead to cardiac issues, all sorts of things, right? Mental health issues. Because if I reject suffering in my life, if I reject Jesus' power in it, then all I have left is me. That's it. And then the, the, the consoling friends of the internet and my Facebook. And then I can just rage and say how everybody sucks. And my real friends will say, you're right. Everybody does suck. <laughs> right? Because that's how support works in our era now. I complain and you validate it. And if you don't validate it, you're clearly my enemy. It's so weird. But whatever. What about a faithful friend who comes along and says, you're acting crazy? Where are those people? Anyway. So if I, if I respond in a, in a negative way, that's what I look forward to, right? That's what we've been talking about. But in this dynamic, I can reach back to my past experience and the truth of what's been shown me, and I can go, but God, right? He works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. That he is so incredible and so powerful that any negative event in my life, whether I caused it, someone else caused it, or the universe caused it, I'm using that generically, I'm not saying something weird, please don't email me, you know, whatever happened, that I can then say, okay, I can be perplexed, but not destroyed, right? I can be pressured, but not crushed, because I go, I don't like this, I wish it were different, but it's not, so Lord, what do you have for me in this? What is it that you would like to achieve in my life? And it's crazy, because he comes through. Every single time. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it, uh, I think in his, his patience, it allows us to languish like little children who finally just get gassed out after a tantrum, right? We've all seen it. Hopefully not an adult, but we've all seen it, right? Where a kid just, just finally just burns out of their tantrum and they're just like, lay there like, oh, and they're all red and sweaty, Right? <laughs> And you're like, and now comes punishment. We've worked through this, right? But, so, but we've seen it. And sometimes that's what we do. We have to work through our tantrum. And we're finally, we're, we hit the floor and we're red and we're sweaty. And we're just like, why, Lord? Okay, whatever. I, I got nothing left. I got nothing left. And all of a sudden, God says, all right, I'm going to work. Now that you're done, right? Now that you're done, I can work. Because a big part of our life, how many times, in, in like in, for example, in Romans 6, do we read, yield, 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 yield. Yielding is letting someone else go, right? Traffic and whatnot. We're told to yield to Christ. We're told to yield to the Holy Spirit. We're told to yield, 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 which means stop you, stop me, and let God, right? So Paul just makes a simple statement. He says, we believed and we've spoken. We can say the same thing. We want to say the same thing. We want the fruit of our life to come from faith that we have. But there's things that we do in our life that can help build faith. Does that make sense? Or make us available to receive all that God has for us in, in, in light of uh, learning from him. He says in verse 14, this is also not just the New Testament or New Covenant, but here's part of it, this hope. He says, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Now, this is wild because he's talking to Corinth, right? 
And he says, we have this hope. This is part of our faith. This is what we believe. We know that regardless of what happens, regardless of the pressure, the perplexing, the casting down, regardless of all those things, in the end, the Father who raised Christ will use the same power that he has, that he used to raise Christ, to raise us, him being uh, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, to raise us with you, being Corinth, together at the last day. So he says, we keep speaking, we keep being involved in ministry, we keep doing these things, because we know something. God's going to complete his work. Remember, back in chapter 8, where he's talking about that, he says, those whom he foreknew, so people that he knew would choose him, those whom he foreknew, he did also predestine to be conformed to the image of his son. So the issue of Romans 8 isn't that people were predestined to salvation, it's that everyone who was saved, those whom he foreknew, he also destined to be something, conformed in the image of Christ. Every believer will be conformed to the image of Christ. It just comes down to how much will we let God on this side of eternity and how much will be at the 1 Corinthians 3 fire in his eyes when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. God is so merciful that if we've banked nothing but anxiety and wrath in our hearts as Christians, that when we stand before him as Christians, he says he'll burn it away. But 1 Corinthians 3 says that he himself shall be saved by fire. So we have a destiny. Every believer has a destiny. And it is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we just get to decide how much of it happens here. And what a, what a blessing to have it happen here. To, to let go of ourselves so that the death of Jesus might work in us. That the life of Jesus might be manifested out of us. He goes on from there, verse 15. He says, all this is for your benefit. Isn't that wild? So we suffer, and every, it's, it's like this universal, individual suffering of every human Christian on the planet, right? And every human Christian suffering on the planet, by the grace of God, works for good for every other human Christian on the planet. That's how powerful God is. So he's saying all this dynamic that's at work, he goes, it's for you, Corinth. We have to decide. If we're going to minister to Christ, serve Christ, we'll get rid of the word minister. If we're going to serve Christ, are you willing to suffer for other people? Because if you're not, then you need one of two things. Just go live for the world and do your thing. Or decide and serve him. Because those are our options. Like the fence thing, the kind of thing where we kind of hang out. We're like, well, I kind of like the forgiveness side of Jesus, but I really don't like the service side of Jesus. It's, you know, there's, there's these people. It's, it's garbage. It's not real. We have the opportunity as individuals to be part of the greatest endeavor that has ever taken place in all of history. And it's to give people the love of Christ, to show them it, to demonstrate it to give him his promises, his word, his encouragement, to show them his lordship, to show them he is returning, and every knee will bow. We have that treasure in these earthen vessels. It's just incredible what God has allotted to us, that we get to be part of that. And I'm not trying to be belligerent or rude. I just really mean, if, if you decide in your heart you're not willing to serve others, you have a rough Christian life ahead of you. Because the Spirit is going to continually try to draw you to be closer to Jesus. But that's the thing. It's, it's only childlike faith. It's only simple trust 
that draws us closer to Jesus. All of our shenanigans and rejections and pride and all that, it only stops it. It's so great, though, that Paul can say, this is all for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. He says there's a dynamic at work here, and that is that the more people that suffer like we are, the more people that are speaking because their faith is growing, the more people that are involved, it's going to cause more thankfulness to God. And it's going to create more glory, more doxa, illumination, good reports of God. Verse 16, therefore, so because of this just enduring truth, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So Paul says, look, we're, we're wasting away outwardly. And it's not just like they're aging, like their body. It's all the outward. The only thing in this entire world that is eternal is your soul. That's it, the human soul. That is the only eternal thing on this world, unless you want to count like the Holy Spirit convicted of sin. So that feels a little nitpicky, but whatever. The only thing on this planet that is enduring is the human soul. That's it. Everything outwardly is decaying. It doesn't mean we treat it like trash. It doesn't mean that we don't care. You know, you don't go out and buy a mower and then mistreat it because you're, oh, I mean, it's not enduring. You, 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 there's, there's responsibilities to be had. But... It's the human soul that will endure. It's the human soul that is the only thing internally. So he says, look, everything outwardly is decaying. He says, but we, uh, yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. But it comes down to this. Jesus told us in John 15, he gave us an encouragement to abide in him, stay with, to stay with him. And he says, because if you don't stay with me, he says, you become like a dried out branch. It's not useful for my kingdom. It's only useful for kindling. It gets burnt. So he says, you want to stay with me because you don't want to dry up. But that's the funny thing. It comes down to us making a decision if we're going to be renewed, right? You know, for me personally, and this is maybe like second tier faith, right? For me personally, I like, I love fantasy books. I'll just admit it. I love fantasy. I think it's so fun and interesting uh, I've never tried to cast a spell. Uh, I've never tried to, uh, you know, worship Moloch or anything like that, so don't be afraid. But I just love fantasy books. I love knights and swords and ching, 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 you know, all that stuff. Someday I'll be one. But the... Uh... <laughs> but I just love it. And so I, I have uh, books on tape and stuff that I like to look at in my car. Not look at. That would be weird. I like to listen to in my car. I said... No, I don't do that. <laughs> I don't judge a book by its cover. But, so, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll get in my car. This is just me. I'm not making a rule for you. I'll get in my car, and I'll be like, oh, let's go. Who's fighting today? You know, what's, what's going to happen? Exciting, you know, stuff. And then this inner voice will say, maybe you should listen to worship music. And I'm, oh, I'm faced with this choice. This choice. I'm like, this is epic battle in word form. It's exciting. They're fighting for good. There's all this, it's so entertaining. Or I could listen to how good Jesus is and his promises and who he really is. I'll go with fantasy. <laughs> right? That's sometimes how the battle goes, right? And I'm not saying you should never listen to books. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. There's a time for everything under the sun. I am not saying there's not a time for entertainment. 
I'm just saying there's times where God calls us in a moment and says, commune with me. And if we ignore those times, we cannot be surprised when we're filled with anxiousness and, and, and anger and depression. We can't be surprised that we're perplexed and we're despairing, right? Because if we're turning down the times that God is inviting us to be renewed, if we're turning down the times that God is saying, I want to tell you something, because that's how the Holy Spirit does it. At least most of the people I know, and I'm not saying, I'm not making any accusation. I'm saying in my life, it's that's, a lot of times it's that, that still small voice, that inner voice that just says, hey, maybe you should think about this. And I'll tell you, every time I listen to that voice, good things happen. And every time I don't, I don't know what happens because I don't listen to it. I listen to some fantasy. And maybe at the end of it, I feel just as dry and shallow as I did before I started it. It takes no effort to be entertained. It takes no effort to, be, to be, feel comfortable in that sense. But it takes every effort to gain knowledge and to gain understanding about Jesus. And so we have to make a decision. Not effort like we earn it, but effort to just position ourselves in a place to receive it. And so Paul's going to go on. He says, look, he says, we don't lose heart because we get this renewing. If you're losing heart, I'm not making an accusation, and I don't want to just reverse engineer this, but I would ask you, if you're continually, as a manner of course, losing heart, are you being renewed? And I'm not even answering that for you. Only you can answer that. Are you being renewed? And if you go, and if you say, because I've run into this in my own life too, where I lie about, to myself about myself. And I go, well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing okay. I've never killed someone, you know, whatever it is. But be honest with yourself. Are you being renewed? He says from there, he says, verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight that far outweighs them all. This is tough, I think, in some respects because he's calling the current afflictions of this age light and momentary. Now, if we, again, we want to be careful here. But if, if we were to go forward here and kind of read Paul's testimony, his light and momentary affliction in general probably significantly outweighs ours. Maybe not, though. I'm not, I don't know what your life is like. But all that to say is, for our lives, where we're at and how we process, and in our experience, oftentimes our afflictions don't feel light and momentary, do they? Oftentimes they feel like, will this ever end? Or I don't know if I can live through this. I don't know if I can bear this. I don't know how to handle this, Right? That's, that, that's normal life afflictions. But he makes a comparison here. He says this. He doesn't say they're just momentary and light because of what they are, where they are. He says it's because of the eternal glory that far outweighs them. So he's not calling them light and momentary in the sense that they're not hard. He's, causing, he's calling them light and momentary in the fact that they're not eternal, but they have eternal ramifications, Right? And what's wild is the ramification. Because he says there, it reaps or it achieves for us an eternal glory. Isn't that wild? So again, glory, doxa, good opinion. Throughout the scripture, C.S. Lewis makes a pretty cool observation. He says that 
for the amount that the scripture talks about treasure in heaven, it would appear that not that we desire God's treasure too much, but too little. And it's interesting, and his point is this, and it's a very excellent point. The scripture is filled with imagery that promotes reward in heaven, right? So I know for some of us, we want to be like, I don't need, I don't, I don't need any of that. It's just about Jesus. And that sounds really good. But that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, there's some stuff in heaven, but you don't care about it because you got me. What he said was, there's rewards in heaven, and you're going to really want them. So either he's wrong, or he's right. And so what's being said here is that when we obey God, there's some form of doxa, some sort of glory, illumination, that we will have as trophies of God's grace. It will not be that some of us will show up in heaven and be like, I'm here, you're welcome, right? That's not going to happen. But it will definitely be more along the lines of, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. What a doxa, what a glory. To hear the Lord Jesus say, well done. And I think all of us will be honest. I think that's why there's a lot of crown chucking at his feet. Because you're like, I'm not arguing with you, Jesus, but let's be honest. It was you. I was along for the ride. You were very gracious. You go ahead and take that throne. Thank you for the glory, right? But there's, it's, there's something being reaped where God will have opinion. And his opinion will not be pity. It'll be approval. And it comes through the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and a willing heart. And so he says, we, we have that. Imagine to be able to sit with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at this table, right, that we're told of, this feast in heaven, unashamed, uncomparing, uncompetitive, smiling at Jesus, eating heaven food. That sounds pretty legit. Not cowering, not weeping, not, not, not trying to hide under the table, not trying to hide what we've done but forgiven, wide-eyed. It says that we'll know as we're known in the same way Christ knows us, we'll know him. That's radical, to know everything about Christ, to know everything in the, in the Godhead, and just be eating and smiling, like, yeah, it's cool. Here we are. <laughs> it's incredible. So he says this, verse 18, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary and what is uh, unseen is eternal. He says, hey, this is how we approach this. This is kind of our final application. He says, when we're going through life, he says, we fix our eyes. We focus them. We have to look at other stuff, right? Tomorrow is a Monday morning. There's, there's work and kids and school and everything under the sun, chores and lawn mowing, whatever, the, whatever waits for us tomorrow. So we have to look at other things. But our focus, our fix is this. The heavens, the unseen, the expectation of, of Christ in this life and in the next. So what do we do with all this? We make decisions in the moment to follow Jesus, right? We make decisions, and you know, you can prepare decisions too. You go, that sounds weird and fake. It's really not. If you know that certain temptations are coming your way, it is wise to have uh, a, a way of dealing with that. 
If you know that alcohol or sex or porn or rudeness or pride, if those are things that you wrestle with, it's good to have something prepared ahead of time. So that when you come in, it's not fake because you prepared it, right? It'd be fake if I prepared it. But if you, and what, what do I mean by that? If you know that you're a proud jerk like me, right? Then you have certain, I do certain things, for example, to try to control myself because I'm wildly sinful. I will, if I'm talking to someone, and well, not when I'm standing up because that would be weird, but when I'm, if I'm talking to someone and, and I'm, because I'll just want to say stuff. Obviously, I talk a lot, right? And so what I do, literally, is I'll talk to someone like this. And that extra second to pull my hand away from my mouth makes me not say stuff. Because I go, oh, no, I'm not talking yet. Sounds lame, right? Things to, 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 to deal with pride or whatever. To have things prepared. Like, no, you know what? Why would I say that? To evaluate things I might say. To, to work on Inviting Christ into my life that when I'm about to say something rude or I'm about to complain about something, that I go, ooh, I don't want to do that. Making conscious decisions to continually give your heart to Christ. That's what we want to do. And when thought processes that are destructive, when actions that are destructive, I'm using the word destructive, sinful, rancid, wicked, demonic, I don't want anybody to think I'm like being soft on sin we immediately are ready to turn from it. And we know how we're going to deal with it. And having tools like that can be very, very helpful. Um, it's 12.04. It's hot. So let's pray. And whoever would like to uh, can stick around for some food. If you'd like prayer afterwards, if you feel stuck in your sin, or you're trying to figure out what you're trying to do in life, we'll try to find someone that can actually help you with that. Father, thank you for your great grace and for your great kindness and for your mighty word. Thank you for your promises and your purposes that are alive and well in our life. Lord, thank you for your gracious will. You're very good to us. And we pray, Lord, as we go out of this place, as your Holy Spirit leads us, guides us, prompts us, that we'd be repenting from sin. We'd be turning to you and being changed. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us in our individual lives, in our ministries, in our services to you and to others. And we pray, Lord, that you would build our faith that, when, uh, that you would speak louder and, and, and convict us when you call us to turn off books on tape or TVs or phones or whatever it might be to spend time with you, that we would obey you. Lord, we pray you continue to do a great work in us in individual, as individuals and a great work in, a, in our corporate body here at this church and in all the churches in the U.S., that we would be those that are shining great light through the power of your Spirit. Thanks for being so patient with us. And so nice to us. We really appreciate that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.